Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations exploring the work and ideas of authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded live in front of an audience. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. This year, NYPL celebrates the 30th anniversary of the Helen Bernstein Award for Excellence in Journalism. It's given annually to working journalists whose books have brought clarity and public attention to important issues, events, or policies. 2016's winner was Jill Leovi, whose book Ghetto Side is one of those books that if you haven't read it, just go out and get it and read it as soon as you can. It's amazing. Other past winners have included George Packer, Ellen Schultz, David Finkel, Catherine Boo, Dan Fagan, and Anon Jirid Haradas. We named five finalists for the award each February, and then the award itself is given out in May. So we just named the finalists for this year's award. They are Jane Mayer, Gary Young, Sonia Shaw, Janine DiGiovanni, and Charlotte McDonald Gibson. And their books cover a range of topics. The money behind our political processes, violence in America, the spread of global pandemics, daily lives of average Syrian citizens and during the Civil War, and the refugee crisis sweeping out of North Africa and the Middle East. And in the coming months, we'll be featuring interviews with those finalists on the podcast. But to kick the season off and commemorate the 30th anniversary, we've got a program that we had here at the Schwarzman Building last week, Journalism in the Age of Trump, which examined the shifting responsibilities, purposes, and even definitions of American journalism. The panel was moderated by legendary journalist Bill Moyers, and the panelists included Dean Baquet, the executive editor of The New York Times, Shauna Thomas, the Washington bureau chief for Vice News, Jose Antonio Vargas, the founder of Define American, and Jacob Weisberg, the editor-in-chief of The Slate Group. Talking about journalism in 2017 is fraught no matter what. But this conversation took place a few days after White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer barred New York Times reporters, among others, from a Friday press briefing, and Donald Trump called the fake news media the enemy of the people during his speech at CPAC. And listed among purveyors of fake news seem to be anyone who's using anonymous sources, which of course includes a lot of media outlets generally reputed to be pretty not fake. And that previous weekend, a large protest in support of a free press, from the New York Times to Fox News, gathered in Midtown Manhattan, making its way from the New York Times building over to Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, and NBC. So needless to say, there was a lot to talk about. So let's not waste any more time. Let's go to Bill Moyers, moderating a conversation with Dean Baquet, Shauna Thomas, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Jacob Weisberg. Thank you very much for that uh, welcome. My name is Bill Moyers, and some of you I know, particularly those of you who grabbed the front seats here. It's good to see all of you. When the library announced this event and announced the names of our panelists, we had to move the event from the trustees' room to this auditorium. That's a tribute to your commitment as citizens and to the quality of the panel recruited for us by Tony Marks and his friends and colleagues here at the library. I'm pleased to introduce each one of them. I know something, and in some cases, a lot about what each of them do, and I think what unites them, as our discussion in the green room just uh, just confirmed, is the uh, belief that journalism at its best, as my friend, the television critic Jay Rosen wrote not long ago, is a civic art that helps public life go well. When this civic, when this public, this civic art doesn't go well, our public life doesn't go well, and is subjected to very rude and brute forces, like a ship without uh, a propeller. So these four people take their calling, and I think it is a calling, it's a form of art, uh, very seriously. And I'm pleased to introduce them. Jacob Weisberg, to my far left, 
my far left, was editor-in-chief of the online journal uh, Slate for six years before becoming editor-in-chief of the Slate group of web-only magazines. If you want to understand the story of Shakespeare's Prince Hal, how this young ne'er-to-do boy grew up to be the fierce warrior, ferocious warrior Henry V, read Jacob's book on the Bush tragedy, about whom you know. Jose Antonio Vargas was a member of the Washington Post team that won the Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of the Virginia Tech uh, massacre. In a widely read, widely acclaimed, and controversial essay in the New York Times Magazine a few years ago, Jose, who was born in the Philippines, revealed his life as an undocumented immigrant. If you haven't already seen it, go online and screen the documentary he produced uh, of life as an undocumented person in our midst. You'll understand why he's also become one of our most effective immigration activists. I mention that in case our session tonight is interrupted by immigration officers, uh, we want to make sure they know who Jose is. You'll know they finally got around to screening the documentary themselves. Shauna Thomas is the Washington Bureau Chief of Vice.com, the new news organization. Uh, Shauna joined Vice after 10 years with NBC News, during which she was senior producer and senior digital producer of Meet the Press. I confess to thinking that Shauna had the best preparation of all of us for her career in journalism. She was very early on a lobbyist for the Meat Institute. And, the, and there's no better way to understand the ways of Washington than to learn how butchers slaughter animals and lobbyists butcher the truth. So, glad to have you here, Shauna. We can talk about that over drinks later. <laughs> Dean Baca is the executive editor of the New York Times, the top on the totem in the newsroom. That makes him, ipso facto, the number one enemy of the people today, as you may, <laughs> as you, as you may have noticed, as, as you may have noticed in, among the posters at your local post office. Dean won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting when he led a team of Chicago Tribune correspondents, reporters documenting corruption in the Chicago City Council. Once upon a time, he was also the top editor at the Los Angeles Times, and he's committed many other subversive activities I'll not go into now. As an editor, Dean, you come from an old tradition that gives me my text for the evening, a tradition that is traceable all the way back to the very first newspaper in America, published in 1690 in Boston by a printer and bookseller named Benjamin Harris. Harris said that his mandate was to give a considerable account of such things as had come to his attention. He called his sheet public occurrences, both foreign and domestic, and said, said in his masthead, his purpose was to cure that spirit of lying that prevails amongst us. It was his first and his last edition the governor and council of Massachusetts read what he said was his intent and promptly shut him down. So here's my first question to the panel. And we'll have you respond first, Dean, because of your 
footprint lineage. What's the difference between the age of Benjamin Harris, the age of Thomas Jefferson, the age of Jackson, of Lincoln, of of Theodore Roosevelt, the age of George W. Bush, the age of Barack Obama, from the age of Trump. Hasn't every president from the very beginning, including the executives and authorities of the colonies, tried to expose and oppose arbitrary power? Um, I think I'll probably stick to more recent history, <laughs> only, only because I feel more qualified having, having been involved in coverage of, of White Houses from Bush one on. This is different. Um, I mean, this is markedly different. I, I don't think I've ever been involved with a president or a ranking politician who liked the press. I thought John McCain said it well a couple weeks ago when he was on one of the television networks and actually turned to the host and said, I actually don't like you either. Meet the press. <laughs> meet the press, right. Yeah, it was Chuck. But, but I respect what you do. I think this president has clearly said he does not respect what the press does. Um, it's one thing to to harbor deep um, dislike for the press. By the way, the most comfortable relationship between the press and the president of the United States should be deep discomfort. Whether it's Barack Obama, George Bush one or two, it should be, it should be uncomfortable. We're supposed to ask hard questions, dig deep, be skeptical, not believe any numbers, and check everything, and that's uncomfortable for a president. But this president, um, actually, I don't think embraces what we do. And I've not seen a president publicly attack the press the way he does. And I think that um, I think that's markedly different and dangerous. You've been on the road a good while, this road a good while, Jacob, looking at Worston, presidents, all that. What's different? Well, Bill, um, I think if you go back, what's different is uh, the attack on the function of the press. So, so as Dean says, presidents, politicians are always fighting with the press. But even if you go back to the period of the founding, I'm sure a lot of people here have seen Hamilton. And if you read about that period, uh, the ferocity of the battles between politicians and the press were astonishing. I mean, we have nothing on them. You know, Hamilton himself was ghostwriting using fake names, attack on, on Jefferson and his allies, you know, anonymous poison pen letters. I mean, it was absolutely vicious. But if you go back in Jefferson, when he was in the White House, was, was in tremendous conflict with the press. But I think it's hard to find, and I actually can't come up with another example of a president who so rejected what the press does. And that function is, of course, accountability. It's the very idea that there is an independent force holding him accountable for his promises, for basic integrity, for the, for the effective functioning of government. I think Trump fundamentally doesn't accept that there are people who get to do that with him. And that's what I think the change is. Can I, I, I be a little devil's advocate here? Um, and it's not that I disagree, but he seems to love being the center of attention so much and also being... He, he wants to use the media and he wants to use journalists to get his ideas through that it has created a situation, and this was more so during the campaign than during now that he's president, that there was a lot of access to him. Um, I think uh, I am struck by, and I have not covered as many White Houses, but I've 
I've done many an Air Force One trip with President Obama. He came to the back of the plane, but I never once had an on the record with President Obama in the back of the plane. Um, and in the time uh, Mr. Trump has been president, he has come to the back of the plane and the cameras are back on and he's having that conversation. Now, whether what he is saying is always truthful or not, or if he's being careful with his words, especially as president of the United States, I can't answer that question. But there is something that there and definitely during the campaign, you know, I sat through a lot, a lot of interviews, and a lot longer interviews with President Trump about his views and ideas than, let's say, Secretary Hillary Clinton, for example. So there is this idea of access that I am very interested in as well, even if he does not appreciate the other part of our role, which is... No, go ahead, go ahead. Which is to question, which is to get to the truth of the matter, which is to figure out what he's saying is right and what he's saying is wrong and what the future holds. Um, I don't think he necessarily respects that part of it, but he is bringing people in. But isn't this, doesn't this approach bring it down to a kind of uh, personal rather than professional level that if we don't get access, we're mad at him, and if he denies us access, he's punishing us? Why should that be a measure of our relationship to a president or to any public official. I think he's, I think if I, I think he is um, taken aback because he's never dealt with the serious press. I think, I think if you look at any of the histories of Trump or look at his life, I mean, he's, he's not, he has never been one of the, despite his name, one of the biggest real estate developers in New York in the sense that he would be, written a lot about in Fortune Forbes and elsewhere. His his press was page six. His press was the you know the back pages of the New York Post where people relied on him to tell him stuff. I don't think he's ever been confronted with the serious press that asks him really hard questions. And I think he's struggling with it. He wrote the tabloid press in New York for years. Very successful. Right. Right. Jose, you come the background that you're a hunted man in a, in a, in a way. So the, que the question I have for you in this context, <laughs> the question I have for you in this context, when, when, Trump, right yeah, <laughs> when Trump tweeted the fake news media, and he mentioned the New York Times, the NBC News, ABC, CBS, CNN, is not my enemy. It's the enemy of the American people. Gabe Sherman of the New York of New York Magazine said he heard a full-on dictator speak in that comment. Did you, when you heard that comment, and when you hear Trump talk about journalists like yourself, do you hear an incipient dictatorship in there? Yes, would <laughs> be the short answer to that. But I have to say though that what I find most troubling about this, well, there's a lot that's troubling. So I have to say, by the way, Paul, I've never said this publicly. I am thankful for the New York Times for publishing my coming out essay six years ago, almost six years ago now. And we started an organization called Define American. Uh, and our job is to how do we change the culture in which people understand immigrants and immigration in this country, right? And the goal of that is, you know, as a gay man, I'm, I think it's really interesting that we now live in a country where being homophobic or transphobic, it's hopefully now culturally unacceptable, Right. Alec Baldwin says something homophobic, people jump on him, he apologizes, he gives money to Glad, all of that. You say something anti-immigrant, you win the White House. That's a, that's a, that's a, this, that's a different culture shift. And at Define American, we've done like more than 800 events in 48 states in the past five years, a lot of actually conservative Tea Party events. And to me, what's so troubling is 
that there are people out there who consider the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC and and NBC as, quote, unquote, enemy of the people. That no amount of Peabody, Pulitzer, accolades would give them credibility. And I saw this happen, particularly in a place like Alabama or Wisconsin, where you literally see people's media diet, right? And this is before even Trump announces candidacy, that they have already dismissed what, quote, unquote, the facts are. When I was a political reporter for the Washington Post, I remember being in Ohio following Sarah Palin around. And I was I went to one of the rallies. This is when I was still in the closet about being undocumented. And I followed people into their house, into their homes who really believed that, that Barack Obama was Muslim. And so I had them Google in front of me and Obama Muslim. And then they would read. And then anything that was PolitiFact, the Washington Post, the fact checker, the New York Times, they just dismissed and they would go to Newsmax, to Drudge, to Bright. And this is in 2008. So now we have an entirely a system, right? An ecology in a way in which people only seek that out. And I think that's really dangerous. What does it say to you that the latest Quinnipiac poll shows that 50%, maybe 51% of the people believe that journalists have been unfair uh, to Donald Trump? What does that say to you? Well, I mean, I think... I'm not, I, you know, I've been a fan of Craig Newmark. Uh, Craig Newmark, who founded Craigslist, ironically enough, because, you know, many people say that he's responsible for <laughs> newspapers deteriorating, you know, because of the ad sales and all that. But Craig Newmark has been, for the past few years now, the champion of media literacy. Like, how do we, how do we inform the public, the greater public, to be more discerning about how they consume and where they consume information? Right. I, I go to my nieces and nephews a lot who are all teenagers and like I worry that they don't understand the difference between a column and a reported item versus a 60 minute segment versus a Wikipedia article. Everything just falls into the iPhone. So I, I worry that that kind of literacy is it has enabled Trump saying that those people, that the press is the enemy of the people. So let's pause right there to ask basic question, given the subject of our discussion, journalism in the age of Trump. Let's define for our folks in the audience what we mean by journalism. Whose journalism are we talking about? The New York Times or Breitbart? The AP or the Drudge Report? NPR or Right Wing Talk Radio? The PBS NewsHour or Fox and Friends? Bill O'Reilly or Jorge Ramos? How do we define a journalist today. How do we define it? You. I think journalism is a big tent. It's always been a big tent. It has to be a big tent. It had to be a big tent in the 1960s to allow for the, you know, the, the very powerful new journalism and, and much of it, um, much of which leaned left that arrived and changed writing and newspapers. So it's got to be a big tent. If it's too small a tent, it pushes out um, new thinking, new technologies, just new people. Um, but my definition is generally, it's, and it also has got to have a lot of room for opinion. Um, I mean, Paul Krugman doesn't work in the newsroom. He works on the, on the opinion pages. Um, he could not write in my part of the New York Times, but of course he's a journalist. Um, I, think you have, I, I, I think you have to have some desire, some mission to search for the truth, 
even if it's your version of the truth. And I think that includes the left. I think it includes the right. I'm not convinced it, it includes Breitbart. Um, it does not include news organizations that are wholly owned subsidiaries of government because they're not out for the truth. Um, it does include, you know, thoughtful, very conservative publications that that have a completely different view from the nation. And of course, it includes the nation. It's a big tent. The reason I'm not sure Breitbart is in it is because Breitbart is, as far as I can tell, since the election of um, of Donald Trump has sort of been a little bit of a house organ. And I think if you're a house organ, you can't really be a journalistic institution. The National Enquirer was not. Um, to my mind, the old National Enquirer was not journalism. They weren't aspiring to the truth. They were aspiring to something different. Um, I think I think you have to have a mission um, where you approach at least your ver your honorable version of the truth, not propaganda. I don't think Bill O'Reilly is a journalist um, by my definition. Not propaganda, but a, a really honorable attempt to find your version of the truth. I guess, uh, Dean, I would uh, make the tent even bigger. I would include Breitbart and Bill O'Reilly. I think if you think of yourself as a journalist, I have no problem with calling you a journalist, but I think journalism is unusual in that it has, it has a first rule and a last rule, which is to pursue the truth and only tell the truth and never say anything knowingly that is not the truth. It's like the Hippocratic Oath of Journalism. And if you violate the Hippocratic Oath, you're still a doctor, but you might be a quack. And you're the equivalent of a quack journalist if you create propaganda, if you know, knowingly publish things that aren't true. But I think journalism has room for advocacy journalism of all kinds. I mean, you know, think about George Orwell, who's you know, one of my heroes is a journalist. George Orwell spent his entire career advocating for socialism in England. I mean, would we now be comfortable with someone whose agenda was to create a socialist government? We might say, well, that's not journalism. They've got, they, they're, they're, they're trying to, they're pursuing a point of view. But if you uh, pursue your agenda honestly, transparently, with integrity, you're certainly a journalist. But, you know, I think we need adjectives before journalists, there are a lot of different kinds of journalists. And that definition, Tucker Carlson is a quack, right? Yes, that, yes okay. you got that. Yeah. <laughs> I think journalism is about when you bring in new information or when you get something wrong, the ability to say, we, I got something wrong, and this new information provides you, my audience, a larger picture of the story we were trying to tell. And I think in some especially on the fringe edges or the quack edges, as you put it, they are unwilling to change, they're unwilling to change their story or their minds when new information comes in that should on the surface change it. And I think that is a little hair of difference, which goes, which goes back to your idea of the truth, that when you are wrong, you say, okay, so then what is the right story and let me find that and let me continue to dig. So you would all, it seems to me you would all agree that journalists try to get readers and viewers as close as possible to the verifiable truth. Yeah. Yes. Have you mentioned the National Enquirer? Have any of you heard of Life Z? You know what Life Z is? It's one of the uh, new favorite publications in the Trump White House, I believe. Yes. Yeah. On one of his press conferences last week, Sean Spicer asked his first question 
to LifeSet. LifeSet, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is a fake news website that traffics in conspiracy theories, even suggesting, for example, that the Clinton family may have been responsible for the death of John Kennedy Jr. in that plane crash. And the video of that, the video of that charge garnered 14 million views. Now, what does it make, what does it say to you that the White House press secretary, in his first question at one of his news conferences last week, put it to life set? What does that say to us about our culture and about Trump's ability to win in time? Well, you know, in the old days, before before the rise of digital media and before the rise of social media, it, to live in an alternate universe took a lot of work. It was possible. You could get the John Birch Society newsletter and, you know, human events and, you know, you could, you could, you could, yeah, you could, you could listen to right-wing talk radio hosts. Even then, it was probably pretty hard to isolate yourself effectively. In this last election cycle, it became the default because so many people get their news through, through social media, which without people even realizing it creates this filter bubble phenomenon where you are given congenial information, information that supports your biases and perspective and given very little, if any, of, of information that will challenge your view. And this is not just, people might think it's a matter of opinion, but of course there, are, there were alternate facts in this, in this election and fake news that was thriving. And so that again, I think, you know, you ask what's different this time, what's historically unprecedented. It's not that no person ever lived in a universe of alternative facts, but the, a huge proportion of the, of the body politic, this election came, in many cases, without realizing it, to live in a, in a bifurcated universe. What does it say when the delusional comes in from the margin and occupies the Oval Office? But if you don't believe that the New York Times or the Washington Post are, are the, the papers of record, that they tell the truth, that they seek out the truth, if you think the media is a level playing field and you're Sean Spicer, then why not ask them that question? That's a, I mean, that's a depressing dark hole we're about to go down. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But this, what in some ways the Internet has done and what social media has done and these bubbles that people live in has done is that if you aren't all starting with the same facts about who yeah. presents the news versus who presents opinion, versus who presents conspiracy theories about the Clintons and John F. Kennedy Jr., then, then, then why not ask Life Set a question? I don't, I don't think it's that they... <clears throat> I just think it's a way to distract us. Yeah, I don't think it's that they believe that stuff. I don't. I think, the, I, I, think I would go... I, I think that they, as I, as I said, I think they have confronted, Trump has confronted, something he's never seen before. I mean, when you walk into the American press in its glory and you see the big newspapers and the big television stations and they are skeptical and they're asking hard questions, that is new to him. I mean, this is a guy who thought he could get away with saying that he was building the tallest building in the world when it wasn't. And I think in their, I think in their, in their zeal to find institutions that will cover them the way they want to be covered, and that will ask them the softball questions they want to be asked, they've had to go pretty low. 
to be frank. And I think they've had to scrape the bottom. And I think I'm, I, my guess is they don't even know all the stuff that that um, that particular news organization has done. I think they want news organizations they can control. I think this is like his version of page six on steroids. I think he wants something where he can leak, he can be anonymous, he can play, he can give him interviews, he can say, I can get you some traffic if if I sit down and talk to you. And, and you, of course, are going to accept that because nobody's heard of you otherwise. I think that's, that's it's that manipulative. Do you think one of his motives is to make sure that the press has less credibility than he does. I mean, it's a little bit like saying, if you stand behind beside a very short man, I'm the tallest man in the room. And it, and it doesn't feel the need. Do you think he feels the need? We don't know for sure. For that kind of uh, uh, credibility that he's better than you are, he knows more than you are, he's more honest than you are. Well, you know, there, there are two theories of Trump. One, that he's uh, being highly conscious and cynical in his manipulation of the press. So he's creating all of this chaos. You know, he's attacking the press to divert people's attention from the Russia story. And that, that's quite And then the other theory is just he's a narcissist lashing out when he's attacked or unhappy. They're both true. I mean, they're not, they're not incompatible. You yeah. probably make both of those things true. Yeah, but, but I think, you know, what happened on Friday, I do think Friday was, was a watershed, and not because he called the press the enemy of the people again, although it is amazing his ability to unconsciously quote both Stalin and Mussolini, right? <laughs> not that many. People usually go one direction or the other. That was Stalin. That's from Stalin. But no, it wasn't that. It was the, the press gaggle afterwards that Sean Spicer had and kicked out the New York Times and kicked out CNN and kicked out BuzzFeed, kicked out the, the news outlets that were unfriendly to them from an on-the-record briefing of the reporters. That is, to me probably the first concrete step in the direction of something we would all identify as censorship, essentially saying only if you're friendly are we going to allow you to cover the news we create. But Jacob, back when you were in kindergarten and I was Lyndon Johnson's press secretary. Our, credi our credibility, by the way, our credibility, our credibility was so bad we couldn't believe our own leaks. But Lyndon Johnson did that. He never did it publicly. He never said, you six are not coming. He, but he would invite his, those he thought would listen attentively and report dutifully. He would invite them to coffee in the morning, to lunch before five of them. I wasn't troubled by what Trump did last Friday. Were, were, were any of you? Well, one that was off the record. Those were off the record. Yeah, they were this was they on were the record. record. I mean, this was the equivalent. It was a smaller group, but yeah. Can I can I ask what, yeah. can I can I ask a question that I can't answer since I'm on the news side of the house? Um, make this not about the press for a second. Make yourself a list of the institutions that America has set up to ask hard questions of the government. They include the press. They include the judiciary. They include independent members of Congress, like a John McCain. And I would, I would argue, if I were a political columnist, and I'm not, those are the institutions that Trump has tended to go after. They're the institutions that have been set up by the Constitution to ask hard questions. And when he gets asked hard questions by any of those institutions, I mean, his, his attacks on the judiciary were extraordinary. 
whether it's the judiciary or the press or the handful of members of Congress, particularly people of his own parties, those are the instances when he tweets and attacks John McCain or attacks the judiciary or attacks the press. So I'm not 100% sure it's just about us. Yes. I think it's larger than us. I have to say, though, like Nick Kristoff had a great column last week, something about how we have to stop othering Trump supporters. What? Stop othering Trump supporters. He left off the B. It was actually bothering. Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I let, let's well, let's talk. About, <laughs> let's talk about the context in which this is happening. By the way, this is happening at a time when, in this country, right, for the first time in American public schools, white students are in the minority from K to twelve. For the first time in America, across the country. Right? For the first time in our country, in the next 50 years, 88% of the population growth of America is going to come from mostly Latinos and Asians, according to Pew. Right? This is coming at a time in which we can barely have a conversation about Black Lives Matter without anybody screaming out All Lives Matter, that we, we don't even know what the Latino and the Asian and the mixed race think of all of this. Right? So having grown up in California, I, I live in LA, uh, in the city of Los Angeles, 72% of all women are women of color. 72%. 48% of all women in LA are Mexican, right? So this is all happening in that kind of demographic context. I have to say, by the way, like this panel is unique that you have three people of color represented. Um, in most newsrooms that I've grown up in, um, the diversity within newsrooms is, is a real problem, right? Um, let me give you one. I'm sorry. I'm a journalist. So I like numbers, right? I didn't know until about two years ago that 72% of all Asian adults in America are immigrants. 72. Asian people in America are more immigrants than Latino immigrants. Yet when immigration comes up, Latino, 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 Latino. If I was Latino, I'd be so offended <laughs> that the news media seems to only think that I care about immigration when education, health care, all of these other issues are a part of that, right? And I just think Trump succeeding, if, I don't know if that's the right verb, at a time like this, at a time when we need, I need the New York Times and Vice and Slate to explain to me where is this America going demographically and culturally and racially. And I think Trump in some ways have really taken advantage of this moment. Um, and then the people who support him, I made a documentary for MTV called White People and we visited predominantly white towns. And, you know, having grown up in cities my entire life, I just always assumed that you're surrounded by diversity until I got to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right? I didn't know that 75% of all white people live in predominantly white towns and their exposure to black people is like listening to Drake and Drake's Canadian, <laughs> right? Or Beyonce, or like, they think, they think they play Grand Theft Auto and then they're down, right? Like more than ever, the news media, entertainment media is so central in building empathy in building kind of figuring out where this demographic changes is leading us culturally. And I think Trump's success, again, I don't know if that's the right word for that, but like, I feel like at a time when we're demographically changing, it's not surprising that the people who follow him, especially predominantly white people who follow him, that's the subtext that we're kind of seeing. But isn't there a, a, another dimension to it? You talk about Trump and immigration. I know that you, in Washington are concerned about covering the agencies of government. You talk about 
the the institutions of, of the checks and balances that he is attacking, undermining, trying to sabotage. You're trying to cover the very agencies that this evening he is trying to reduce to rubble, metaphorically reduce to rubble. EPA, for example, F, uh, FCC, FDA. Are we being distracted by our obsession with Trump from actually what Trump is doing? I think so a little bit. I think the more the media and journalists make this about themselves, the less time we will spend delving into what the EPA does or delving into what the, the fact that he wants to give $54 billion more billion to the Defense Department and take $54 billion away from, from discretionary non-defense spending. And what does that mean? And how would that even be possible, which it's not actually in our current law possible? And that we, the entire conversation, especially around like the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which I, which people in D.C. love to talk about and they've been hating <laughs> on for years, and that's fine, distracts us from really, really difficult work, diving into what these agencies do and what they might not do and well, where the cuts are going to come. Now, what kind of response are you getting prematurely, of course, because it's just happening? What response do you get from the agencies when you call or you're asked to come over and you want a briefing or you want to see the new director? Or has it changed since Obama? Um, it's, it's a process of figuring out who's the right person to call right now. Some of it is that this administration has not fully staffed up yet, and I don't think that's totally abnormal a month in, but there's a lot of positions within the White House that aren't filled. There are a lot of people or a lot of positions where the Obama administration person left and they apparently left their briefing book on their desk and that position has not been filled yet. So trying to dive into who are doing those acting jobs is a little bit more difficult, but you also have a situation today where um, the Office of Management and Budget did a phone call briefing about these top line numbers, but they only they had a very limited number of phone lines. So if you didn't call in before 10 a.m., you were locked out. They did not send, at least not before we went on stage, a, um, a transcript of the briefing. Um, the pool wasn't actually there, and we can talk about what the pool is at some point, even though they said in their email that the pool would be there. But there were three other actual presidential events going on at the same time. So in some ways, it's... in. I would like to chalk this fully up to they're not fully staffed yet. I'm not sure that is always the case. It is right now harder to pull information out. But some of that is eight years into the Obama administration, you just knew a lot more people. So I actually, can I, can I, say, sure. I, I actually, um, I would, I would um, disagree a little bit. I, I actually don't think um, it's distracting. I actually think that this is um, paradoxically a a great age for American journalism um, and a great age for the people who want to consume good American journalism. I think this is like, I feel like in my newsroom, um, I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff. We are looking at um, government agencies. We are looking deeply into the records of the people he appoints. But I find that, um, and I, I've said this before, I find our mission is profoundly clear. I think we went through, I think we went through a period, especially newspapers, went through a period of a few years when our business model got turned on its head and where I think we were, we were really worried about the future and we thought, you know, what's our role in a, in a news world that includes all these new players who are so different? I think that it just got simple. It's like, 
kick-ass reporting, deep digging, going into the agencies. Meanwhile, guess what's going on? The agencies are in revolt. The permanent government of Washington, which includes everybody below that top layer of people the president appoints, they're all pissed off. They're talking. They're leaking. We have a we have a tip line that we've set up on our website, and we we have trouble keeping up with it. There are <laughs> there are people in government, many people in government, like who work in the Department of the Interior, <clears throat> who believe in the mission of the Department of the Interior. Many people in the arts agencies who believe in them, and they they are talking, they are leaking, and and we realize. You know, the cobwebs are clear and like, bring it on. I, I actually think this is a good. And by the way, the, the, the most clear thing is that, you know, for all of our, our discussions about being uncomfortable with Trump, I like being uncomfortable with the president. I feel like you don't mind being in opposition. I don't believe I don't I don't want to be in opposition. I, they say you are. I know that's 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 not what I'm that's their fantasy. Um, that's not mine. It is not the role of at least my my part of this big umbrella of the press to be the leader of the loyal opposition to Donald Trump. The problem with being the leader of the loyal opposition to Donald Trump is the people you align yourself in opposing Donald Trump eventually come back into power. That how it, that's how it works. And then you're just sort of a chump or a lapdog for the people when they come back into power. What I believe we are is a, is a tough check on the presidency, people who have to ask hard questions, and that's our work, and I don't mind the uncomfortable relationship. I think what he's doing in his public attacks on the media, I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous for the way people regard the media, but in terms of having an uncomfortable relationship with the president, I think that's, help, that's healthy for journalists. I would think you would feel liberated, Dean, from having to do what is necessary to achieve access so you can ask hard questions to which you often don't get hard answers and liberated to do really deep digging to spend time instead of a reporter not saying you do this a reporter sitting around the White House waiting for a briefing to be into one of these agencies really digging through the record. I would think this is a moment of liberation for for journalists. Real journalists. But but I think think there are two sides of it. I I very much agree with what what Dean just said very eloquently. And, you know, journalists get up in the morning with a powerful sense of mission and responsibility and the stakes have never been higher. And it's sort of what we're put on earth to do and it's energizing and it's, it's exciting. That's all true. But we're in a context in which free and independent media are in global retreat. I mean, for close to the past 10 years, it's, we, we have less journalism in all sorts of countries around the world, in Turkey, in China, in Russia, in Venezuela, in Hungary, in Poland. And we, we exist in that context. And many of the same kinds of phenomenons and behaviors that have restricted the media at, uh, and, and circumscribed its ability to perform it, its function in those places are potentialities here. So I think on the one hand, 
it's a it's a it's a massively energizing and in many ways I think it's inspiring to see. I'm inspired by the way the bureaucracy has reacted to Donald Trump, but I think we have to recognize the jeopardy we're also in, and part of that context too is the economic jeopardy of the media in the United States. And suppose you know Steve Bannon, who is uh, Trump's alt brain and his chief strategist. Steve Brennan says, we haven't seen, you haven't seen nothing yet. So what happens if the president, and I believe this is not only conceivable, but quite possible. What if the president orders a sweeping campaign to classify documents and then files charges against the journalist and the news organization that publishes one that's been leaked? What happens when we get a Trump majority Supreme Court? <laughs> That could even, Dean, refine the First Amendment and take away, to at least reconsider the protections afforded journalists by Times versus uh, Sullivan, the protection of journalists and, and news organizations, even when they are critical of, of uh, political figures who are, are factually wrong. What if he goes that far and this becomes not a rhetorical or a press room crusade, but a legal and philosophical change in the protections afforded to journalists under the First Amendment. What do you do? First off, I, I, maybe I'm naive. I think two things will happen. I don't know whether that's likely or not. First off, I take tremendous comfort in the fact that, um, that my readership and the people who subscribe to me, that those numbers have gone up astronomically, like nothing we've ever seen, which means, which means the American public... Is saying, I mean, it's almost it's it's staggering. I mean, it go, when it when he tweets, it's like twenty five, thirty thousand new subscribers. <laughs> it's it's stunning. And the way I read that is that there is a tremendous number of Americans who believe in the press, who want the press to ask tough questions. That's one thing. The second thing is, I am hopeful that there are members of Congress. I mean, when a guy like John McCain, who is being beaten up by the press, including my newspaper, forever, um, says that he believes in a free press. When George Bush, the, the last president, says it, I actually do think um, that if Trump goes too far in terms of legal issues, I think he'll have a fight on his hand. But I also think that something has happened in the, in the post-9-11 era with the intelligence agencies and the military. I think they're weary of war, um, and I think that they will start, and as you can see it, <laughs> it's already happened. I think they will start leaking. I think he'll have the biggest fight on his hands, and I think it'll be an epic, historic moment, and the naive part of me thinks that the principles of journalism win. But I can't think of it any other way. Um, I just want to say, by the way, that I agree that I think we are living through in many ways, a, a golden age of journalism. I cannot think of a more exciting time to be a journalist, and I cannot think of a better time to be really good at what, at what we do, right? And I'm saying this as someone who is, I guess, as a journalist, as an enemy of the people, and as someone who's deportable, which brings me to this point. Um, one of the things I think we as an industry must do better, um, you know, I'm in this really weird position where, because of what I do and because of who I am, 
you know, journalists are like, well, you know, what are you doing advocating for, you know, disinformation when really all I'm doing is like advocating for facts, right? <laughs> like, I actually think immigration out of all, everything we've done, I mean, it's not a surprise that when Donald Trump announces he's running for the presidency, he made Mexicans the enemy and Muslims the enemy, right? And made it about immigration. That was the central theme of the campaign, right? I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that this has been a time of absolute fear and panic. Um, a, a, a high school teacher last week tweeted at me. Um, I guess she uh, assigned her high school journalism class to compare how the American news media covers immigration and what's happening versus the Hispanic news media. And the Hispanic news media was all about the stories of these people and the families getting separated and all that. For the most part, the American media, labor, 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 right? So that was really interesting. It was an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Um, I, I would hope that um, we as an industry must do a better job in just reporting on this issue. Let me give you a perfect example of this. Vice in 2012 did something remarkable. They interviewed the chief actuary of the Social Security Administration who said that in the past, 10, that in the past decade, Undocumented workers like me using fake social security numbers have contributed $100 billion into the social security fund. That undocumented workers using fake papers have kept, have helped keep social security solvent. This is the chief's, chief primary source, the chief actuary. So is that a fact that you hear on NPR? Is that even a fact that, I mean, the fact that undocumented workers contribute to the economy is a narrative that we don't hear. For whatever reason, the news media, for the most part, have accepted this narrative that we're dangerous, that we're criminals, that we're criminal aliens, right? So actually, today at Define American, we release a facts matter sheet, and we're, we have sent this to every journalism association and every reporter who covers immigration, that these are certain facts you should know. You should know that 40% of the people here illegally actually overstayed their visa, meaning they didn't cross a border. Have you sent this to Fox and Breitbart? And the New York Times and the Washington Post and I would yes sir. And Dean, since I have you here, because you know, Dean's job is like incredible. So today there's an article in the front page of the New York Times right now focusing on DACA, these 800,000 young people, right? Two sources of the article are Numbers USA and Center for American Studies, both of whom have ties to white nationalist groups and have been labeled by the Southern Poverty Law Center as hate groups. But in the article, it doesn't say that because I don't know why, but, and again, it's not just the New York Times. This is like, this is NPR, this is AP. I remember as a gay man, there used to be articles 10 years ago when they would argue about same-sex marriage when there would be a quote from the family council values saying that how bad this is. To me, making sure that we're really, you know, as a, somebody who does this work every day, there's like a $29 million infrastructure that has dehumanized and made us criminals. And we need the help of Vice, of the New York Times, of Breitbart, although I don't know, I'm not holding my breath, right, to help us really get the truth out there and get the facts out there. I'm only a third of the way through my outline, but I have the signal that we've been almost an hour and we promised at least half an hour to the audience to ask questions of you. So let's have the audience uh, the questions from you. There are microphones on each side of, uh, of you. So just raise your hand and someone will pass you a microphone. There we are. Back there. 
Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for speaking on this panel tonight. I have a question, I guess, primarily for Jose. I wanted to ask about how you feel about the notion of objectivity in, in news media. I mean, personally, I'm a journalist. I feel like it's a different age and the, the game is different and we have skin in the game and I don't know if I can be truly objective on the other side. Uh, see some of us as less than human, sees Muslim and uh, other immigrant communities as threats. Um, so I just wanted to see what the panel thinks about the idea of being objective as journalists. Well, uh, <laughs> um, hmm. actually, I just got an email last night from an undocumented young woman who was DACA, who's a news producer in a conservative state. She's a news producer. I'm not going to name the state, but she was asking, when do you know it's time to speak up? Like, she's afraid that if she raises her hand, that they're going to automatically wonder, well, why is she, why does she care about this more than the other people in the room? Right. Well, I just have to say that as someone who's undocumented, as someone who's gay, as someone who looks like this, I've never had the privilege of being objective. Um, I, however, I do believe as a journalist and, you know, journalism to me is like, it's my church. This is my identity. I believe that being objective in terms of the reporting that you do, that you don't just go down one lane, that as much as possible you expose all lanes, that more than anything, you must also question yourself and why you believe what you believe, right? I believe now that us being more transparent, right? Jay Rosen calls it like the view from nowhere, right? More than anything, I actually think the view from somewhere is really important, right? And I find it really interesting too that, you know, when um, David Brooks, says something, you know, I read them. And I, I find it interesting that when, when straight white guys say something, it's an opinion. But when it's a woman, a person of color, or a gay person, it's advocacy. Right? When people do it, it's analysis. But when we do it, we're advocating for something. So what is that about? I think that's something that has to change, especially right now with the attack on women's rights in this country. I think, you know, more than ever, women journalists objectively seeking the truth, but exploring all of these lanes, right? I think it's so important that you make sure that you're being analytical, but at the same time being true to who you are as a journalist and what you're supposed to do. I would remind you that the great muckrakers of this country 100, 110, 15 years ago were all advocates. Advocates, uh, like George Orwell. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's, um, I mean, objectivity is, is, a, is a term, one of these terms you can get into these bottomless debates about. I prefer defining the goal as intellectual honesty because that applies to both uh, advocacy journalism or opinion journalism and straight reporting. But it, it means it, it's a big responsibility it imposes. It means that you take seriously arguments you disagree with. It means you don't load the dice in favor of the things you do agree with. It imposes a set of obligations that I think are very healthy in any form of journalism. Um, and I think in a way that's what ad objectivity should mean. It's, it's avoiding the natural tendency towards subjectivity, towards finding confirmation of what you already think in the, in the reporting or the analysis that you do. Well, and I think that the, the example you gave of the woman who has DACA, who's a yeah. news producer, that it would be a shame if internally within their newsroom she did not say, okay, we're doing this piece 
what about this point of view? Like, so that you're going down all the paths to try to create the most complete story you can. I mean, I think diverse, the reason why people talk about diversity in newsrooms is so that, that you have different points of view or different ways of life or, or people grew up in different places so that you're not missing something in that discovery period that can add to what we are trying to do and to finding this uh, objective truth if we can find it. Um, so I think sometimes like having the ability to raise your hand and sort of say, well, because of my experience, have you considered this idea? That is a good thing. I don't. I, I think those are very eloquent definitions of objectivity. I don't think objectivity at its best was ever supposed to be a reporter goes to cover the war in Vietnam, comes back and says, on the one hand, it looks like the Americans are, are losing, and on the other hand, <laughs> if you go back and read the great, the great reporting of David Halberstam and people like that from Vietnam, I think, I think it is this open-minded pursuit of the truth. And I think that the, the, I think each of them captured it really well. It was never meant to be. It's just that you don't, this objectivity does mean going into the world of people who supported Donald Trump and trying to understand it and shutting up and listening to them. That to me is the essence of objectivity and, and making them feel like they're heard. That to me is the essence of objectivity and the essence of journalism and not to, and that, that objective, and the truth is not in that, in that kind of reporting exercise, whether Donald Trump, Trump is good or bad. The story is, which I think all of us are still pursuing in one way or another, why did large segments of the country vote for him? What, what, was, the, what was their thinking and do they want the government upended? And I think the objective pursuit of that question is the kind of objectivity I believe in. That gentleman. Thanks. Hi. Um, I'm, I, I'm a reporter and a social media editor with The Economist, a newspaper based in London. And so my question is coming from the outside. And I'm very interested to hear what the panel think about <laughs> the voices of um, global media, although we're based in London, we're very much a global publication. So I'm interested in what you think about those voices coming from the outside and exactly what position they find themselves in now in this big, messy conversation that is the U.S. media. Such as? Give us an example of the voice you have in mind, a voice you have in mind. Well, our voice is, is, is liberal in the, in the British sense, um, uh, in the, in, and globalist and internationalist, and so that's, that's the economist's voice specifically, so obviously I'm interested in that in particular. And whether, you know, one of the things that we were talking about earlier was the the extent to which sort of traditional media in the U.S. is um, sort of outside the, um, the the picture, outside the frame for a lot of people in the U.S. And I'm just wondering, are foreign is foreign media even further outside of that, or is that an opportunity for foreign media to come in, etc.? Although we've been going for 170. Four odd years, so. <laughs> well, a, a lot Thanks. of uh, foreign media is thriving. Russia Today, China Daily. Uh, you know, you can get these things here. I never used to see them. But um, look, I think, you know, one thing that's clear is if you're the, um, if, if you're international media, 
you're going to get no attention from the White House. I mean, Donald Trump called on this BBC reporter at the, by accident at the, the press conference but, and, you know, then harassed him just for no reason. I mean, he just said, oh, you're BBC, you're a beauty or whatever. It was a hilarious moment. But I think it's liberating to know that you're not fighting for access when there's no possibility of access. I mean, the one had everybody, everyone's going to be leaking, right? So you can call, you know, you can, you can pursue in the bureaucracy, you can, you can pursue all, all sorts of stories. But access to the White House, you're going to get less probably than you would have in another administration because they don't care what the rest of the world thinks. They don't certainly don't care what, what European media thinks. So you're free to pursue the real story. You're not going to be a prisoner of that briefing room. It would be a waste of time to be, sit there anyway. Good evening, and thank you for this esteemed panel. Uh, quick question to the gentleman with the economist. Were you alluding to Brexit? <laughs> and how and the impact that will have on the U.S. was that what you was alluding to with your question? Okay. Well, now that I got that answer, I'm gonna go, go forward with my question. Uh, in about 24 hours, uh, our president, number 45, will be preparing to give his first State of the Union address. And I was curious to know what are your expectations, if you have any. Thank you, Shauna. Yeah. Um, I actually think the speech will be similar to what you've heard before on the campaign trail. Um, I think I think it will be similar to what we heard at CPAC. He will continue, I mean, he's, as his staff has said, and as he has said, he has told us what he wants to do at very broad, with very broad strokes. So I think we're going to hear a little bit more about his budget proposal. He's going to say he's going to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. I think he's going to say... Well, I, I'm not sure he's going to say that, um, but I think he's going to say we're going to build a wall and we've already started to like ask for contracts. Um, and I, I, I actually don't think we're going to be that surprised. I do think there will be a little more policy because Stephen Miller seems to be the primary speechwriter of this. What I don't think it's going to sound like is the inaugural address, um, which was really dark. And I think even the White House has sort of realized that. I think... The question a lot of people have, and this is unfortunately I am going to bring it back to the media, is the level of um, media bashing that's going to happen or journalism bashing that's going to happen in the speech in that room in particular, where there are a lot of people, as we mentioned before, John McCain, Marco Rubio, other people who don't want to have that conversation about the role of the media in that same way or the First Amendment in that same way. And then ha if he does go down that path, how the people in the room react, I think is going to be an interesting thing to watch for. Um, but I, I, I'm not really planning on being incredibly surprised by the speech. I think that's right. I wrote way back there by the camera. Um, I'm, one of my questions is, I'm, I'm thinking about just journalism over the years. So we look back to George Bush, the media was kind of complicit leading up to the Iraq war. President Obama was pretty quiet professional person. I'm just wondering what skills has Trump forced out of the media that were kind of lethargic, that were kind of lost over just looking back over the Bush administration to where we are now? Yeah, I'm probably going to push back on the media being lethargic. I think I think what happened in Bush and the invasion of Iraq was not a great chapter in the in the life of the media, to be honest, I don't. I don't think anybody would would defend that coverage. But I wasn't at the New York Times, but I was at another newspaper that 
also didn't exactly ask hard questions. I actually think the media did ask hard questions during the during the Obama administration. I think everybody forgets the opening month. It wasn't as chaotic as this, um, <laughs> but the opening months of the of the Obama administration. I think the media asked. I think the media has been in hard question mode for a long time. I think that um, I think the lessons of the Iraq War were were um, bracing for the press. And I think the press has been asking tough questions since. I mean, the, the, if you look at the disclosures in the American media since then, from the abuses of the CIA and torture to the, um, the black site prisons to Edward Snowden to WikiLeaks, um, the post 9-11 creation of a, of a national security spying state, the militarization of intelligence. I think there's been... Tough, tough coverage. So I think that the media was well prepared for Donald Trump, except for the fact that what what um, one of the panelists said that the media was in a rockier financial footing before. But I think the media has been in pretty, I would argue, pretty tough-minded mode now for a while. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one. It's not Trump exactly who's caused it, but I think the media during the campaign did a generally weak job listening, describing what was going on in the country. I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, feeling you can't help but have that we missed a lot of this. And why did that happen? I don't blame Trump. I blame Nate Silver. I think there was, you know, a tremendous vogue towards data journalism and a view that anecdote was sort of worthless and going and listening to the country and trying to describe things didn't really have much value because the point of journalism was to predict an outcome and the way you predicted outcomes was by crunching numbers really effectively and that was actually a message that was easy to hear in a lot of newsrooms that were having resources constricted and you know couldn't afford to send people out on aimless month-long reporting trips. And I think we're now going to swing back, and that's good, because I don't think anecdote is a waste of time. I think listening to people and describing the social reality of the country is a crucial function of journalism. Yeah, I think, right as we were talking before, the kind of uh, sort of immersive journalism that Vice News does, whether that be in the Middle East or being willing to spend the money to spend time in states in the middle of the country, um, people want to see that and they respond to that. And that, and one of the big things is that you want to do as a journalist is take people where they couldn't necessarily go. So we have the money to go there and show you something you wouldn't necessarily see in your world. We should be doing that. We should be presenting that. Two more questions. One right here. Hi. Thank you all um, for what's been a really interesting conversation. My question is mostly for Dean, but welcome or open to anyone else who wants to comment. Um, I work for the Committee to Protect Journalists, and I spent a lot of time documenting abuses of press freedom all over the place. I never imagined I'd spend this much time on America. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, you said earlier that you thought sort of the power of journalism would prevail if it came to legal threats or, or sort of legal pushes from this administration. And I wonder... I guess, you know, what are you afraid of? What At what point do you start to worry about him attacking the press? Or what do you think a meaningful attack on the press from this White House looks like or a meaningful chilling effect looks like, if not a legal threat? Um, I think the things that make me most most nervous um, are, first off, leak investigations. Um, and you have to remember, even Barack Obama, who was publicly portrayed himself as a friend of the press, 
um, opened up more leak investigations than any of his predecessors. And, 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 and in the case of at least two New York Times reporters, pursued either the reporters or their sources. So if Barack Obama could do that um, and get away with it, um, I think that my biggest fear about Donald Trump would be leak investigations. And he's already, you know, he's already setting the stage. He's talking about leaks. That, that makes me um, really nervous. Existentially, I'm nervous about a president who thinks it's okay to tweet daily about individual reporters and news organizations. I think that there, I mean, I get really angry emails from people. I get emails from people who believe him, um, who think that there's some, I mean, the most ridiculous notion is that there's somehow a conspiracy among the big press to, I mean. Wait, we have a meeting. Every I know. Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I we all just decide. I mean, Michael, my, I, I am thrilled that the Washington Post is a good competitor, but I don't want him to beat me on any stories, and I don't want to talk about stories. <laughs> I'm so I'm I'm worried that I'm, I'm worried about the corrosive nature of all the tweeting for all of the fact that it's that it's in, that it has inspired readers to come to us. Look in the long haul, you know there are a lot of angry Americans who react to his tweets. I think that and the leak investigations are the things that bother me the most. I know, and maybe I'm naive, by the way, when I say that that I don't. I'm not convinced Congress would go along with major, major erosions of press freedoms. Um, but maybe I'm naive. One more. Yes. Hi. Um, yeah, so thanks everyone again. Everyone keeps on thanking you, so I feel like I need to as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, kind of jumping off of what you are talking about, which is his, um, you know, rhetoric on Twitter, um, how how do you reach um, Americans who refuse to believe truth? How do you reach those Pizzagate people who are are literally willing to go and you know shoot up a pizza place because they believe that you know there are pedophiles there from Washington? Um, is there a way to you know permeate that crowd who's just reading Breitbart and Infowars? That's my question. Well, can I, take, I mean, one thing is I think Facebook has to accept its responsibility as the disseminator of news and information. More people are getting their information there than anywhere else. And they have only just begun to accept the idea that they have, that, I mean, they don't even have to call themselves the media company, that they have a responsibility to privilege true information over intentionally false information, right? I think they have, they I think they now accept that. It's taken a long time for them to get that far. From, from our point of view, you know, the New York Times, it's going to be very hard for the New York Times or Slate to, to reach outside a certain uh, orbit. And I don't think our goal should be creating news that is appealing to people. I mean, I think we have to insist on, on the standards that we've always had. But I do think it is, and this is something we didn't really touch on, but creating a sense of prioritization around what really matters and what doesn't is something I think we're finding it very hard to do right now because Trump, as, as we said, creates this sort of chaos all the time. You know, the Washington Post did this tracker that I think basically said he told 131 lies in his first 32 days in office. 
Right. You can't, you can spend your whole life responding to every tweet, to everything he says. It's up to the responsible media to tell people who care and who are capable of caring which things matter a lot and by, by extension, which things you can ignore. And look, I think what matters is the threat of autocracy, kleptocracy, Russia, immigration, Obamacare. I might stop there. I mean, if we can tell the story of those five things, we'll be pretty close to focusing on what's important. And it's a lot you have to let go. I'm really happy you asked that question. I think it's a really, really important question. Um, I'm, I'm straddling a lot of wor worlds because of what I do, but I had this conversation actually with my friend Damien, who's sitting right there, who was talking about, do we, do we expand the base? I mean, there are many people who want to make sure that you're preaching to the choir and you're, you're converting the people who need to be converted. Is that the job or is the job to just broaden the base, right? So there are 41 million immigrants in America, 41 million. Um, I did my own survey of my own family. So out of my family, there's 21 who are naturalized citizens or born here in our citizens. Out of the 21, 15 were eligible to vote. Only three voted. So I did this uncomfortable thing where I'm interviewing my aunts and my uncles about, wait a second, like, why did you not vote? And one of my aunts was like, I have the Toyota Camry. I bought the house. I've sent the kids to school. I'm done. Right? And I'm trying to think, like, how many, having grown up in the Bay Area, like, what does civic participation means for us? Like, we're at the library. The library, for me, if it wasn't for the library, I would not have known Stephen Sondheim. I would not have read the New York Times or the New York. Like, this was, like, my first introduction to American culture. The library is what tells you what's important. Right? And I'm really glad that this public library specifically works on citizenship, you know, citizenship, writing people to for citizenship tests, ESL, I was an ESL student. Like, how do we engage people who don't feel like they're a part of this thing? How do we broaden that, to me, is a really, really important question. Instead of just thinking about, like, I don't know how many Breitbart readers I'm going to be able to convince that I'm not just some illegal gay Asian alien or whatever. I don't know. Is that really worth my time? I would rather focus on those people where I'm from who feel as if America is just something you buy and you wear. It is not something you participate in. That for me is one of our jobs as journalists is to how do we empower those people to feel committed, to feel involved, to feel like citizenship is not just pieces of papers, it's actually something that you give back. I'll exercise the prerogative of the chair by closing the meeting and saying that I too think that is the question that I confess to being older than anyone else on the panel and the feeling uh, a little more that I've seen it. I, I've seen these dangers come around and grow with time. I mean, I grew up in the antebellum South where the truth about slavery had been driven from the pulpit, driven from the classroom, and driven from the newsroom, even in the little paper I got my start on at the age of 16. And I saw, in retrospect, what happens to a people in a culture when they are organized and devoted to a lie, the lie of slavery. I was in the Johnson administration for half of that time, 
And I will say that every major newspaper in the country was with him every time he escalated. They believed optimistically in what he was doing. It was only when the consequences became so painful that the papers, based on the reporting from the field, uh, began to turn their opinion. But Johnson was, to some extent, uh, a, uh, a mirror of, of, of Trump in his attitude toward the press. And he would rail against the communists like the AP's Peter Ornett or David Halberstam or uh, Morley Safer, who uh, did some remarkable reporting from Vietnam, calling them communists, uh, calling their bosses, threatening them. And it didn't work because the proof on the ground, the evidence of the reporting, was more powerful than the intentions of the White House and the president. But I saw what happened to an administration when it organized itself around the lie and persisted in sustaining that lie against any verifiable uh, uh, truth. So I worry that we are reaching a level of non-caring in society that makes it possible for what George Orwell, you quoted a moment ago, I thought of him yesterday in that remarkable display of books about race that the New York Times Sunday Magazine laid out. If you have not seen it, go home and get it tonight and look at it, because what it shows is how long a lie can be sustained, even though it is a lie, because people prefer not to face it. That's my concern about America uh, in 2017, despite what earnest and skillful and dedicated uh, journalists do. I came across something in preparing for this evening from Tony Karen, who's a former editor at, at Time and an instructor now at the New School, who wrote the other day that he thinks Bannon's opposition remark should serve as a stark reminder that to, quote, defend democracy against the threat of authoritarian populism, media outlets must not stop at vigorously challenging Trump's alternative facts. They must tell a different story based on observations, investigations, and critical assessments of claims made by both Republicans and Democrats in power. And on the subway down here tonight, a woman stopped me, sat by me. She said, I saw you eight years ago on this subway. And I want to, I've seen you now, eight years later. She introduced you. Her first name is Cassandra. And she said, but you know, like eight years ago, we were in trouble with the Bush war and Cheney and all that. But now it seems to be worse. What do we do? And I was able to tell her that I had just 20 minutes before read something that Walter Lippmann, whom I knew in the mid part of the last century, one of the great uh, journalists of the last century, wrote. Because I'm really hopeful about the protest and the demonstrators, if they can sustain themselves, including those who showed up at the New York Times yeah. yesterday. I saw your marvelous quote, yeah. encouraging them, welcoming them. Uh, because this is what Lippmann said, and I told it to Cassandra who said she had to change her name after this. <laughs> Lippmann said, the kind of self-education which a self-governing people must obtain can only be had through its daily experience. In other words, a democracy must have a way of life which educates people for the democratic way of life. I think we've lost that, or I think we're losing it, and it's what 
concerns me. So I end on that happy note. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming out. Thank Thanks again for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. Visit nypl.org for all of our programs. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever else you listen. And next week, Trevor Noah.